Welcome in, everybody. Um, welcome to it is uh, Thursday, July 8th, 2021, and welcome to State of the Family Courts. My name's Mark Real, Southern California family law attorney and founder of Real Fathers Rights. Tonight, uh, we have a special guest on the show hailing from the state of Utah. We have Utah divorce attorney Eric K. Johnson. Um, he is the founder of Utah Family Law LC. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight, Eric. Can you hear me, Eric? Do we got volume? I don't know if, uh, I, I can't hear anything if I am, so. Sorry, oh, sorry about that, that, folks. We got, we got a little bit of technical difficulty. Um, let me, uh, let me get, can you hear me better now, Eric? hear me? I can't. Yeah, I, I can hear you now. So um, you, are you getting any volume from me? I can see you're speaking, but I can't hear. Gotcha. You're breaking up a little bit on the... This. Is it possible for me? Could you give me a thumb? You're breaking up. We can hear you, but you're breaking up. Can you hear us now, Eric? I have unmuted my mic and I don't know if I, I, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes, we can hear you. Can you hear us at all? Let's go ahead, um, go ahead and uh, leave uh, the studio can, here and come. I, okay, you can hear me. I can't hear anybody at my end. Yeah, I can't hear anybody speaking to me. All right, go ahead and, and leave the uh, studio here and pop back in. We'll get you pulled up on here and see if that fixes it. Let me ask you this. Is it okay for me to leave the stream and come back in and see if that helps reestablish a connection? Yeah, definitely. All right, guys, sorry about the technical difficulty here. Um, once we get Eric back in the studio, we will hop in and talk about Utah and the laws that uh, actually changed in 2021 in that state. So we'll give him about 10, 15 seconds. He should be able to pop back in. And then hopefully we can get rolling on this episode. So sorry about that. Thank you for everyone who is, uh, is sticking around while we work through these technical difficulties. All right, so uh, we'll let him get back in here. There, we're going back in. And we are loading up now. Hopefully, yeah. this fixes the issue. Eric, can you hear us? I can. Awesome. Okay, think, looks like we're good okay. now. Okay, awesome. So now we'll hop in. Uh, we'll just go ahead and jump right in. And we will talk about what's going on in the great state of Utah. So um, prior to the episode, Eric and I were talking about um, laws in the state of Utah, how they're a little bit wonky and how they've changed. So I start off every single state by talking about the National Parents Organization scores. So NPO scored the state of Utah as a C which is firmly in the middle of the 50 states and then the District of Columbia that they grade out. Um, that score probably improved slightly 
in 2021. Eric, do you want to talk a little bit about the new legislation and what that means for parents in the state of Utah? They have passed this legislative session, which in Utah ends in uh, March, that is called uh, known as Utah Code Section 30-3-35.2, to make it easier, at least in, at least conceptually, to get joint equal physical custody. Utah already a some years ago passed a law that presumes that joint legal custody will be awarded to both parents, and that has become the norm. It's very hard not to get joint legal custody in a, a child custody or divorce uh, case with child custody, but getting joint equal physical custody has been uh, virtually impossible if it's litigated. If the parents agreed, that was something that could happen, but if you went to court, uh, it was very, very difficult. So this 35.2, this 30-3-35.2 law uh, sets some criteria that if met uh, does not mean the court must award joint equal physical custody, but if you meet all the requirements, it would be harder for a court not to do so. Gotcha. So it made it easier, not perfect, which we realistically, we only have two states that have a presumption of equal and shared parenting currently. Um, a, a father walks into your office for the first time. What can they expect? How does the process typically put, play out for Utah parents? So let me start with this. So if a father uh, sits down with me, and let's assume it's a divorce. I'm gonna, I mean, we can talk about unwed parents, but I'll talk about a divorce uh, because it pretty much ap applies across the board. Unwed fathers face a little more uh, prejudice they uh, they have a little, because it's like, well, you know, you haven't married the mother, so you're not as responsible. There's, a, there's that feeling they might get. So uh, you have to deal with that. But then let's talk about just child custody in the divorce context. If the father came in to sit down and talk to me and then said, I have a substance abuse problem. I'm an, I'm an alcoholic or an alcohol abuser, or I, I use drugs illegally, or I'm abusing or addicted to drugs, then I would say you're in a world of hurt. Uh, because even if you're a functioning alcoholic or something like that, that's just uh, it's just a red flag and courts can easily seize on that just saying, well, you, you, know, you admit or you've been caught as someone who abuses drugs uh, and will never know if you're, if you're going to, to be a good fit parent, so that's a strike against you. Same thing if the father came in and said, I have, whether, whether accurately or not, whether, whether you truly were guilty or not, I've been convicted of domestic violence against my spouse or against um, one of one or some of my children, that's going to be very hard to overcome. I will not say it's impossible to overcome, but very, very, very difficult. So with those aside, if a, if a father comes in and says, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm a solid citizen. I pay my taxes. I don't have a criminal record. I, I may enjoy a drink or I may enjoy smoking a cigarette or something like that. Uh, Medical and so you're in the clear on that but you still have an uphill battle because whether the system will ever admit it or not and there are a lot of people who will both in in the legal system and outside of it that will say oh there's no there's no prejudice against father there's, there's, sorry. So, there's no prejudice against Bob. There's nothing. There is. I mean, and anybody who's honest, I think so. You won't be able to find it. 
institutionalized by seeing it codified in the Utah Code or in any kind of court rules. But it's and it's one of those things where I like to compare. Fathers are kind of like the black man or the black woman in the 1960s, where you know you could say, well, look, there's nothing in in the Constitution that's that that's prejudiced against people of other races. But in fact, we saw a lot of that in practice. You see that in court. So fathers have to win their cases six ways from Sunday where a mother wouldn't have nearly as difficult a, a, a task ahead. Yeah, and I, I think you see that in a lot of states. I tell uh, a lot of fathers. Yeah, I tell a lot of fathers exactly that. A lot of times there's a presumption that the mother is a fit mother. And when it comes to a father, that's not necessarily the case. We're going to have to prove that you're a good dad, um, where the mom a lot of times is going to get the benefit of the doubt. So when it, when it comes to that and when it win, as you put it, winning the case six ways to Sunday, um, what, are, what are some of the biggest pieces? Oh, looks like we, uh, we lost Eric there. I know we were having a little bit of audio issue earlier. Um, so what we'll do is I'm going to, I'm going to go to the commercial break here and hopefully we get him back in by the time we get through that. So we'll go to commercial here real quick. You love your children and want them to have everything. How about both parents? Introducing equal shared parenting benefits program. The program is very simple. Sign up, download the app, access services. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program offers access to medical market, telemedicine, mental wellness, medical bill negotiation and advocacy, chronic care, and a wellness savings program with membership add-ons available soon, like prepaid legal services, prepaid college savings plans, prepaid identity theft protection services, and much more. Annual memberships starting at just $35 a month. Here's what our members say about us. You guys are a huge blessing in my life. This community is amazing. I truly thank you for all that you do. Learn more and sign up at www.tfrm.org. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. It's about the children. They're today and they're tomorrow. All right. Awesome. We have Eric back in here now. So I am here with Utah Divorce Attorney Eric K. Johnson of Utah Family Law LC. So you were, you were touching on the fact that when a man walks in, they have to understand that they may have to win that case or prove their point six ways to Sunday to be effective. So That's we'll start out with that guy sits down in your office. What are, what are the two or three things that you are going to tell them to do or ask them to do that are going to ultimately help their case in the long run? And even though the courts, will act as though this doesn't happen, it does. So first of all, if there's, I mean, I'm going to kind of exaggerate to make my point, but only slightly. So the wife will be presumed to be a stay-at-home mother. So you actually might have to go in and say, now you are aware, Your Honor, that we both have jobs. Or if the dad does not have a job, uh, he says, by the way, I'm the stay-at-home parent. I'm the stay-at-home caregiver. My wife has a full-time job. I don't have any job outside the home. Excuse me, I missed my earbuds coming loose. Uh, I don't have any job outside the home. So I'm the primary caregiver, and I have been for years. And then you have to say things like, and it's not because I'm lazy. 
uh, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like, we did this by choice. It's like, my wife makes more money than I do. I actually happen to be better at taking care of the kids and enjoy being around them. And so this has worked out well for everybody, husband, wife, and children. You have to be able to do that because it'll be presumed that the wife is a stay at home mom, take care of the kids, always has taken the five or longer kind of job as, as that of the job schedule. So don't ever think that, that any fact is going to be uh, just inquired into. You've got to establish it. You've got to make sure that on the record, it is known who has the jobs, who takes care of the kids, how long that has been the case. You need to be able to prove that you can do things like boil water, that you know how to uh, dial a phone and speak to uh, dentists and doctors, things like that. And you might think, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, this is the 21st century. Surely nobody would think that I'm just like some kind of club dragging oaf who does not, does not know how to do anything other than punch his card from nine to five and then come home and then sit in front of the TV all night long. That stereotype still persists. And there are many times when the stereotype persists because not not because it's truly believed, but where it wants to go. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. And and obviously, Utah is is a very unique makeup in terms of the the demographics, the ideologies. But I see a lot of those same things where the man has to be able to prove that they can be a caregiver, that maybe they are the primary parent providing most of the structure around the home. Uh, especially in the smaller, more rural counties in California. So I think you could say really, really nationwide in, in those smaller counties, there may be judges that, that truly believe that. And you may still get some of that in, in the more conservative urban areas. Um, Let me give you an example of a situation where mom had a job, dad had a job as well, but he worked from home because he was a computer programmer. He'd been doing it for the past four years. Even then, the court awarded on a temporary orders basis custody of the children who ranged in age from nine to 15. Okay, so they weren't some kids that needed full-time care. Still gave custody to mom on the basis that mom had, over the course of the children's lives, been their primary caregiver most of the time, even though in the past four years, she had not been. I mean, so when I tell you that the deck is stacked against you, uh, it's not that way in every court, not that way with every judge. Or, and we have commissioners here that will handle some of the preliminary matters. You might have something like magistrates or other things in other kind of courts, whatever names they are, but stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it defies reason. It defies logic. You're saying, wait a minute, he's been a stay-at-home father for the last four years, but mom gets custody of them because even though she works outside the home, she used to be a stay-at-home parent. And the reasoning the court gave, which was really just some pretext to do whatever it wanted, in my opinion, was, uh, well, I don't see how dad can have a full-time job and provide adequate care for the children at the same time. Remember, nine, ranging in age from nine to 15. So, so they're when in I school say, all day yeah. every day. Yeah, so father, you've got to make sure that you can prove beyond any doubt that you are fit. Moms won't have that same, uh, uh, same obstacle. They'll be presumed fit parents. You will essentially, kind of like there's you know, the presumption of innocence, and then, uh, and then we say, well, it's corrupt and it's terrible when there's a presumption of guilt. There's a presumption the mothers are fit parents. There is, frankly, almost a presumption the fathers are unfit, or at least unfit to exercise joint equal custody. Now, if you're a father going for sole custody because you're greedy and you don't want to pay child support, well, damn you to hell. But if you're a father who wants to get sole custody because mom is unfit as a parent, 
you still have that same uphill battle. It, it will be nigh on to impossible to convince a court, uh, generally speaking, that you are better, uh, you are a better parent and that the mom is an unfit parent. Yeah. And that, that's, I think that's a, a very tough mental hurdle for a lot of men to get over uh, when they first walk into the office, when they don't understand necessarily what they're fully getting into is like, this may not feel fair. This may not. Yeah. And Mark, if I can, if I can interrupt before I lose my train of thought, I mean, we want to believe that the, the, the court system is going to treat me fairly. That doesn't mean I'm always going to win or get my way. But surely the court isn't going to just indulge in biases and presumptions that are unfair. The answer, unfortunately, is yes, it will. Yes, they do. It happens quite often. In fact, in my experience, more often than not, both yeah. in big ways and small. Definitely. So when you get one of those temporary orders, those initial orders, and it is not necessarily what the the your client wanted. What are what are some things that our viewers can take away? You don't get that initial order you want. Maybe your access is extremely limited. What should they do and how can they work with their attorney more effectively to ultimately get to where they want to get to? Well, I've got some bad news. In my experience, save up your money for an appeal. Uh, I've tried very, very hard to modify those temporary orders where there may have been, it may have been dad's fault, where he may have been uh, caught, uh, passed out because he don't, he drunk too much at a party, but he wasn't a drunk. Or you know, or he may have gotten upset with a child who deserved to be disciplined, but the claims against him had been overblown. Uh, but it also could be something as simple as, well, we we just we just don't want you to have it. We don't want you to have more time with your kids. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how much better you get. Even if there's nothing wrong with you to begin with. Sorry about this earbud. I don't know why it won't stay put. And so, unfortunately, you can try, but I recently had a, I have a case right now where I've gone back to court several times by saying, please, uh, I don't think we, I think we've shown that there's no harm to the kids in the schedule we've got now. They can, they can spend more time with their father. They want to spend more time with their father. Father can accommodate more time. And the answer was, nope, we're not going to keep messing with the temporary orders you'll have your opportunity to prove that dad can spend more and should spend more time with the kids and the kids with dad when you get to trial. And Mark, I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but here's the end, here's the end game here. So then what I say is, wait a minute. So you expect us to believe your honor that this temporary order, that if it goes to trial, will have been in place for probably a year and a half, if not longer, isn't going to have any prejudicial or precedential effect. Uh, and then I can walk in and say, even though dad's been limited, to a, a minimal or almost minimal period of time for a year and a half, that I can come in here and persuade you that he deserves 50-50. And even though I asked you to give 50-50 a try during the discovery phase and during the time the case was pending, you're going to tell me that you won't, you won't consider the year and a half, you're not going to look to that, and then you're going to let me come in and prove, Lord knows how, that I can get 50-50. Even though we could have spent that six-month discovery period going from minimal time to increasing it to a, you know, one more overnight with dad to another overnight with dad. So we went from the minimal to the joint custody period during the pendency to find out what the kids benefit from. You see where I'm coming from? Yeah, 100%. Sounds like that Utah is a little bit more rigid with those temporary orders. I know here in the state of California, you can get that temporary order and that may be two, three, four months after the initial filing. And you can weave through the system for 
two, three, four years out here with the length between hearings. But if you continue to show that you're trying to be an active parent, you're trying to be more present, you usually can get the benefit of the doubt from a judge and slowly gain more. That's wonderful news. In Utah, no. I, unless, unless it's a part of the state that I haven't practiced much in, and I practice throughout the state, uh, they, most courts will lock you into one temporary order, one temporary custody and parent time order, and it stays that way unless you can show some emergency need to make a change, like let's assume that mom has primary custody. Well, if mom get, you know, gets hit by a bus and is in the hospital, or mom suddenly you know, becomes a, a heroin addict or tries to murder somebody, Something, I mean, uh, I'm not exaggerating. It has to be something major. Wow. I mean, even something is like if mom got evicted from her apartment and was couch surfing, that may not be enough to get a change in custody. I'm not even saying a switch, just saying, well, okay, mom can keep couch surfing and I drag the kids along with her. Just let them spend more time with me until she gets settled. Yeah, I'd be surprised if you could even make that work. Wow, that that is uh, that that can be rough on the parent, and I'm sure it happens to both mothers and fathers that do get that raw deal in the temporary orders in the state of Utah. And one thing we have to remember is is that it's it's not about the parents. When when the when the fathers come to me and say, you know, I want more time with the kids, I have to make sure that I sit them down and say, now I know you personally want more time with the kids, but when you say that, you're not literally saying it's all about me. You're saying my kids deserve more time with me. I'm a good influence on their lives. I help them with homework. I can do things that mom can't do. I, I'm different in my personality and my skills. Yes, I want. I have a personal desire to spend more time with my kids, but my kids deserve to spend more time with me too. I'm a good influence on them. I will make them happier. I will give. I will equip them with tools to have a more fulfilling life. So make sure that you're not trying to. You're avoiding the implication that it's all about you and that it's just what you want for yourself. Make sure you're saying, I'm speaking on behalf of the children. They deserve to be raised by both of their fit parents. And the best way to do that is to spend equal amounts of time because that's the most they can spend with both parents. And I can't remember who said it, but you've heard it before. The best parent is both parents. Yeah, 100%. And I think you made a really, really strong point there that really everything you do when you're going through this process needs to be put through the lens of what is in the best interest or what is best for my my child or children. Um, or as I tell all of my clients, you will no longer refer to your kids as my children. My they, will be, they will be our children. Um, judges tend to not like the my children piece. Uh, yeah, which is really lame because they're kind of like, ooh, he said our children. Uh, he must really be enlightened. And it's like, okay, look, I, I don't go around when I talk about my children. If I were talking to you about what my children did, uh, my wife wouldn't be offended uh, because I'm, I'm talking about my kids. And if my wife and I were having a conversation with you together, we'd talk about our kids, of course. But even then, I might be saying, oh, yeah, my kids are great. And then my wife might be talking to you and say, yeah, my kids are smart. So, but yeah, our kids, it certainly doesn't hurt. I'm going to tell you something else though. Yes, this best interest of the child thing, which is a terrible standard, but it is what it is. You'll never be able to persuade anybody. At least in my lifetime, I may see a change, but we should make sure that we point out like, look, this is best for the kids, but the children are not the only factor for the court to consider your honor. I have rights too. 
I brought these children into the world because I intended to be a parent and I intended to be a part of their lives. And I intended to, yes, enjoy watching them grow and, and being proud of their accomplishments, but I also wanted to enjoy their love and companionship. They don't exist in a vacuum. I have rights too. And recently, uh, I filed an appeal for the first time in my career. I've been a lawyer for 24 years. Never filed an appeal uh, because either I just thought, well, we've got good grounds, but I don't think they're enough, or my client didn't have the money. I have won my first appeal, and the Court of Appeals of the state of Utah made a point of, sh of, of pointing out there are other factors. Yes, the, the best interest of the child is important and perhaps even preeminent, but there are other factors, and we can't just treat parental rights as if they don't exist. So talk about what's best for the kids, but say, for example, hey, if 50-50 custody has been shown to be no worse for the children, to do them no harm, and, is, and, and, and has no ill effects on them as, say, a, uh, what we call a, a 35.1, which is like a every other weekend and one overnight uh, every week. It's like, if, if the children are doing well under either schedule, well, then give me 50-50 give us 50-50 because there's nothing wrong with it. So, you know, at, at worst, it's not doing any harm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, is uh, is that appeal that you were successful in, is that a, a published case or no? Yes. It yes, is? Yes, it is a published case. Well, it hasn't been published yet, but it's been published by the court. If anybody wants to look it up, it's the case of Nakina versus Mahanti, an Indian couple, N-A-K-K-I-N-A, versus M-A-H-A-N-T-H-I. Okay. And if you're and if in you'd the like me to, I'll, I'll send you the citation link if you ever want to put it on, you know, like link it to this video in the future. Yeah, we, we can definitely do that afterwards. And I point that out to, I guess, do a little bit of education on, on case law and family law court. Uh, Eric said he's been practicing for 24 years, and because of a myriad of factors, this was his first appeal. Uh, compared to other bodies of law, there's relatively little case law in family law, um, just because of the factors he mentioned, the cost, um, not necessarily having a really strong case. Um, I agree with you. And, and one other thing, Mark, and the fact that the courts have such broad discretion and authority to choose that it's really hard to, to, to convince a court of appeals that the court did wrong because they're given such broad abilities to do almost anything. You took the words out of my mouth. With the, 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 <laughs> hey, it's a perfect, we need to hammer this point home. With the appeals process, you have to essentially find that the courts misapplied the law or that a judge abused their discretion. And when we have in, in really every state best interest of the child, I, I say it's an excuse, not a legal standard. That, that's what uh, all of our viewers hear me say all the time. Best interest. Right. And uh, the, not the former, I think he's the former president of, or maybe he's still the president, uh, Don, what's his name? I want to say like Saban or something like that. I'm sorry, professor. But he's, he, was the, he would say that the best interest of the child is an aspiration, not a standard. In other words, a standard is something where we can say, if, you know, if, if this, then that, or we can actually show that we meet the standard. I think that the standard or the aspiration should be the best interest of the family, both collectively and individually. We should come up with a child custody award that takes the needs and the interests of all family members into account. 
yeah, that, that's definitely some. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a comment up on here so we can kind of. I kind of want to stick on the appeals piece. I'm gonna ask you some more questions on that, but I want to okay. pull up. Uh, Daniel made some comments here. I can give you more than 200 pieces of case law related to parental rights, and he also made some comments about um, the Supreme Court. You are correct in that, Daniel. Uh, the point being that I made was that if, when you compare it to employment law, when you compare it to business law or contracts, uh, the body of law is not- or personal at, injury. Yeah, the body of law, the number of published cases aren't the same. Yeah, we have several hundred cases um, in every single state that are published, but that's relatively small compared to other areas of law. And I'll so, say one other thing. Go for it. I'll also say this. The the pronouncements from the U.S. Supreme Court on the subject of family law and parental rights and child's rights are almost so lofty and broad as to be meaningless. I mean, things like, you know, God-given rights. Well, that's very important, but so, so broad, so 30,000 feet that it's almost meaningless in a particular family's case. So if somebody says, what about my God-given rights to be a parent? A judge and a trial court judge can say, well, I recognize you have God-given rights. And thank you for being a responsible parent who works nine to five to put a roof over his family's head. But you're never there. You're always working. And therefore, you can't have the children. It's like, wait a minute, I'm not always working. And if it weren't for me working, they, they wouldn't have a stay-at-home parent. Why am I being punished? So, the U yes, there are U.S. Supreme Court cases. They're very nice to quote. They usually aren't very persuasive, however, because they're so they're so broad and so lofty. They almost yeah. have no meaning. When you read them compared to a lot of other decisions, and, and you have to realize these appellate judges at the state level, at the federal level, are Supreme Court justices. When they make decisions, they're looking at what, how those decisions will impact the future. And it just seems like in terms of family law, in terms of domestic relations, they are very gun shy of creating too strong a precedent that could create a could have a negative impact across the country. Um, just from reading these cases, that that that's my take on it. They're really afraid to really put their foot down and make that's a good point. statements. And and so we'll 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 stay on the the appeals piece. So this is something that um, a lot of dads talk about, um, but as you mentioned, not very frequently does it occur. So when you get a decision, a bad decision that's been made or, or something you believe that that can get overturned on an appeal, what is the process like in Utah and what does the client go through? Well, um, I had the help of some experienced uh, appellate attorneys as I prepared this, or I, sh I should say one, a retired uh, attorney that was a big help to me. So I'm not the best uh, source of advice on what to do because this is my first appeal. I've worked on other people's appeal appeals, but they were non-family law related. But what you do is you have to file a notice of appeal and then you have to pay your fees. And then you have to brief the, uh, once they, once they tell you that they're, they're allowing you to appeal the case, uh, that, or if you have an appeal of right, and then you brief the case and then the opposing side gets an opportunity to submit a brief. And then you submit that to the court. Let me give you an example of just how hard this is. I filed this appeal in November. No. Um, I think I filed it in February of 2019. And then the briefing was all over by November of 2019. The decision came out June 17th of 2021. 
Okay. That creates so, another issue in family law because yeah. kids obviously get older. And yeah. once the kid hits 18, none of this is relevant anymore. Right. Um, so if you, yeah. So if you, if you get, uh, if you get a bad custody award and your children are 15, it's not worth it. It's not worth it because by the time you've won, if you win at all, uh, the kids have aged out. Now, in my case, this, uh, these kids were younger, but still here's what's so sad. So the children, uh, oh, by the way, that the court of appeals reversed and directed the trial court to award 50, 50 custody because they found it was that clear cut. Uh, wow. but this, now this father has been, has been deprived of a year and a half of joint equal custody. There's no recovering that. Uh, now I'm not saying that to criticize the appellate process. I don't know enough about it to be able to say it could go faster. I don't know, but I do know it doesn't go fast. And so that's something you have to keep in mind. Oh, and here's another thing. Uh, this is not a plug for my appellate services. Okay. Uh, I, I don't generally like divorce and family lawyers. Uh, I just, I find them to be just very difficult people. I, I don't like them generally. I'm a glorious exception. I don't say that with any irony. You're very pleasant. Uh, yeah, I'm a very pleasant person. Uh, I don't suffer fools gladly though. And so when it comes to an appeal, you're looking at, in now Utah is very cheap compared to California. I'm just gonna guess. But even if you find a bargain on an appellate case where you've got a good lawyer who knows how to argue persuasively and is not going to tell you to appeal if you don't have a strong enough case, you're looking at anywhere between 20 and $30,000 on an appeal. What's it cost in California to appeal a, a, a bad hey, hey, custody decision? You're probably looking at about the same thing. And, and California is notorious for the, at the trial court level moving slow, it, it would move at a snail's pace. You're probably looking at five years and easily thirty, forty thousand dollars And most people do. I don't have that. No, I don't have, I don't have that money if I were in that situation. So a lot of times you just say, this is, this is unfair. You, you got the shaft, but don't appeal even, oh, even though I think you've got a very good case, don't appeal because I don't think it's worth the money. I don't think it's worth the money because of the effort. I don't think it's worth the money because of the risk. And by the time you win, if you win, it may be that any of your gains are just a Pyrrhic victory. And if you don't know what a Pyrrhic victory is, folks, uh, look it up. You'll love it. <laughs> yeah, that's that. Like I said, that 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 goes on top of the case law piece is the fact that there is the proverbial shot clock on family law cases because if your kids are going to age out, um, then why are you going to spend 10, 20, 30, 40? I've seen, I mean, there was the news out here that Brad Pitt has spent over a million dollars on his custody case over the last five years. Average person doesn't have $15,000 laying around to play with just to prove a point. Uh, yeah. So you get, you get a lot of really strong cases that you probably could make some ground on, but it doesn't make sense logically to pursue those. And if you're saying that an appellate case in California can take four years, give or take, that gives me some newfound respect for my court of appeals and my jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah, I would say here, um, just I wouldn't have any hard statistics, but you're probably looking at a quick child custody case is isn't probably going to get to trial for two plus years at minimum. Uh, what um, about the appeal? If you appeal, you said it takes about how long? Oh, you're you're looking from start to getting an appeal. I mean, yeah, you're you're looking at you probably are from when the case was originally filed to getting to an appealable decision, um, you're looking at two or three years just to get to that final order at minimum. And then how long does the appeal take? 
it, it, I, I literally just read an appellate decision that the case, I believe, was the appeal was filed in 2012 and the decision oh. didn't come back until 2016. So that's that's four years right there. Um, the time it weaved its way through and that had, that that case had made its way to the appellate court ended up back in the trial court for for something procedural and then ended up back and forth I mean it's it, it's a mess there's so many people especially especially in the most populous counties out here there's so many people they're so overcrowded um, that everything moves at a snail's pace all right so We'll, we'll kind of move on. We got about 10 minutes left. Um, anybody who has any questions for Eric, whether it be Utah specific or in general, start dropping those in the comments here in about 10 minutes. We'll take three or four of those um, to wrap things up. So this last 10 minutes of us talking back and forth, um, I want you, you've been practicing for 24 years. So I want to give you the opportunity to kind of drop some wisdom and knowledge on our viewers. So uh, we have, most of our viewers are going to be men or they're going to be support system of a man going through the family law court system. So okay. someone walks into your office for the very first time and they have no idea about what to expect. What do you want to teach them? What are you going to tell them? Um, and what have you found the clients that have been the happiest and most successful at going through the process do? They're going to be very disappointed and disillusioned by the way the legal system treats them. So that's basically the inoculation that I give you right there. Uh, you're you're going to be unhappy and you're going to say, and even if you are a rational human being and someone who's, some, who's pragmatic, you're going to be disappointed because you're going to say, hey, I know that people are imperfect. I don't expect perfection. And I know that the judge doesn't know me from Adam. So I don't expect the judge to believe every word that comes out of my mouth but I still expected better than this. That's what you're going to say. So I tell them that up front so that they, they won't be that disappointed and that disillusioned. They're still going to be shocked, but at least they weren't given a heart attack because, you know, because of the shock. So then I say, if you want to reduce the odds against you uh, and you want to make sure that you give yourself every opportunity, in a way you're going to have to do a lot of things that are going to feel somewhat artificial. I don't want you to lie. Uh, I don't want you to fake it. But you're going to have to do a lot of things that, as I said earlier, there's going to be certain presumptions, generally speaking. Not, not every judge or commissioner is going to behave this way. But it's one of those prepare for the worst and hope for the best situations. You're going to want to make sure that you uh, document every good thing you do for your kids. You're going to want to make sure that you document, I show up to pick them up on time when, for the, you know, what measly bit of time I get at the, at the beginning. Maybe it gets better. I pick them up on time. I, I don't bring them back early and I bring them back on time. I don't show up late. I, I, I mean, you want to, I tell dad, keep track of the registered tapes of what you buy at the store. Make sure that you keep a track of what you're feeding the kids and that you're giving them nutritious meals. Don't eat out too much. Don't eat out too little. In other words, you want to be a model citizen and, it, and that you're going to behave in a manner that is better than you ever have before, but not, not that you were ever a bad person. You, know, you were a normal person. Nobody would find anything wrong with what you did, except when you get into the divorce court, it'll be things like, well, he always gives them soda pop at dinner. And it's like, 
well, you're right. I do. I give them a little glass of Sprite and, you know, we all like Sprite and we enjoy it. It's like, oh, that's terrible. And you're like, it isn't terrible. It's not. Every reasonable person knows it's not. But you've got to start doing things where you are, you, you want to, you want to make sure that you avoid the very appearance of evil as, as, as it says in the Bible. You know what I mean? You want to make sure that if you go to the gym, that it's not going to be construed as I'm a narcissist who spends all my time working on my good looks. I not again, you're not just going to be physically fit and trying to be a, you know, a healthy person. You're a narcissist. Uh, and when you drive, uh, when you drive a little bit over the speed limit, you're not just doing that because, you know, hey, five miles over, what's the harm? You're reckless and dangerous. You want to look, you want to do everything. Uh, next thing, next subject. You want to make sure that you live your life as if you're being watched 24 seven, because there's a very good chance you might be watched. There may be a private investigator following you around trying to find some dirt on you. So one thing I tell a lot of the uh, male clients is if you break down on the side of the road and right there is a brothel where you could go in and call AAA, don't walk the two miles down the road to the Denny's or someplace else. Because if anyone sees you walk into a brothel and they can see you clearly have a flat tire, they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. You're a cad, something like that. Uh, you also want to make sure that you uh that when if there's a custody evaluation you want to you want to you want to lobby really hard for saying let's not just follow one simple schedule the whole time and one thing i'm having success with it's taken forever but finally there are some courts that are seeing the wisdom in as i said before during the discovery phase which means you know after the case is filed the parties get to ask each other questions and look for documents and, and have tests conducted or things like that that's about six months in Utah. It's supposed to be six months. It often lasts longer. But then you say, let's do the minimum schedule for 60 days. Let's add a day for 60 days. Let's add another day for 60 days. So that by the time we get to the end, we're at 50-50. And then if at any point on the way to 50-50, it's proven that the kids won't benefit from that, well, then we'll stop. And the benefit to the kids is we know what works for them. The benefit to the court is we know what works for them. And the benefit to the parents is well, 50-50 may have been what dad wanted, but 50-50 doesn't work, either because the kids suffer or because dad can't handle it or maybe a combination of the two. But the main thing is, is that you've got to, unfortunately, you've got to go into court and prove you are a darn near perfect parent just to get equal custody of your kids when mom is not held to the same standard. A lot of golden nuggets in there. First one I took, and this is one that I, I preach, I feel like every single week on here, fathers that are going through the process, I tell all of my clients, you need to go to Walmart, you need to go to Walgreens, CVS, you need to get yourself a journal or a daily planner and be able to document everything. You need to know their doctors, you need to know their teachers, you need to know how to access their grades, how to communicate with these people, and you want to document all of your interactions with them because those could come into question. Um, and then I always tell dads that you got to be super dad in real life in things that are going on. And you're going to have to appear to be that way to the courts. Um, that's just the way it is. You have to appear to be perfect. And I liked your, your, your soda analogy. What parent hasn't given their children Mountain Dew at 8 PM because they were sick of hearing them whine, but all of a sudden mom brings that up in court. And for some reason it becomes an issue. All right, so um, guy, we'll, we'll go grab a couple questions here. So if you have any questions, I got two picked out. 
Um, if you have any others, drop them in there and I'll pick one or two more. So we're going to go back to Daniel here. I had him up earlier. Um, I have a question for Mr. Eric and, and both of us will be able to kind of touch on this. Why is due process not fought for more in family law matters as well as ignored so much? Essentially, you, do you want me to take this first or do you want to hop in? Go right ahead. So in, in terms of the due process, and, and if you we dove deep into due process last week, um, Ryan McLaughlin was on. We actually just scheduled a follow-up, a special edition for hopefully in a couple of weeks, we're going to have him back on. But due process, so the state um, essentially is arguing that there's a compelling state interest um, to essentially void the due process. Um, and it's a pretty weak argument. It's kind of status quo. Um, go back and watch Ryan's episode last week with me, and he dives in. He's actually filed in Minnesota courts um, a challenge to violations of due process in family law. So I think that would probably be, we spent probably a half hour covering that. Um, we'll hop into something a little more topical here on this one. So do you guys have guardian ad litem, child attorneys? Um, yeah. In, okay. So we got a question here. Let me find it. Um, so I'll kind of paraphrase it here while I find it. So how do you, how does a dad most effectively deal with guardian ad litems, child's attorneys, or you mentioned evaluations earlier, when you bring these neutral third parties in, how can a dad effectively navigate that? I'll do, let me answer that question. Uh, but first I'll talk about I'll pro due process just briefly. Yeah, there's go for it. Substan there's substantive due process and procedural due process. Uh, procedural due process simply means that the rules were followed. Well, I can follow the rules and still choose to uh, mistreat you. So then that gets into, well, was I treated fairly? That's, that's kind of an intellectually dishonest but very simplified way of talking about substantive due process. Yeah. Substantive due process you could, you could argue till you're blue in the face about that as a father saying, I wasn't treated fairly. And you could even prove factually, hey, look, there was a lot of misconceptions. There were a lot of presumptions uh, and a lot of, a lot of prejudice. It, unfortunately, it's much easier simply to show that the, that the court just made a lot of bad choices and was being very unreasonable. Now, when it comes to guardians ad litem, guardians ad litem are, it sounds great. Uh, and it, I think it's awful. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where in, in theory, it sounds like a good idea. A ch a, an attorney appointed to represent the best interests of the children or the interests of the children. Uh, I have found, and I don't mean this in anything other than this is my honest opinion. I have found that guardians ad litem are generally not the best attorneys. I have found that guardians ad litem, not always, uh, are not the best attorneys, uh, have, a, have a personal agenda that colors the way they view the facts and what they perceive. And so they may, they may have been uh, abused children themselves, or they may have gone through, they may have had, uh, may have been a child of divorce, or they may have felt that uh, men or women or boys or girls get treated unfairly or something like that. So they often come with an agenda. They don't really spend a lot of time with the children. And then what they really are, while they're supposed to be kind of one who stands in the shoes of, or as a mouthpiece for the children, what you often find is that they will tell the court what they want the court to do, as opposed to what the children have expressed to them. 
So I, I try to avoid Guardians ad litem as much as possible. I find that they don't add any value most of the time. I find that they actually do more to confuse the issues and the facts. Uh, so I don't like using them. Uh, they, in Utah, you cannot conduct discovery. Uh, you can't direct discovery to a guardian ad litem. So if a guardian ad litem says, I met with the children, many times I've said, well, before you do meet with the children, uh, judge, your honor, I want you to order that the interview be on the record so we can find out what was asked to see if the questions were properly asked and if they were fully asked and then what the child's answer was. And I have in 24 years never gotten a court to grant that. So what happens is it's really uh, the guardian, and this is a, a term that a friend of mine in Pittsburgh said, they've really kind of treated these guardians and custody evaluators as child whisperers. So they're saying, hey, I'll tell you what the, you know, I'll generally kind of describe what the kid said, and then I'll make recommendations. And I kind of thought, your honor, if we did that for any other witness, it would be a travesty of justice. We'd laugh. We'd say, wait a minute, your honor, don't call it. Don't let this guy get called to the witness stand. I'll just tell you what I think that guy would say or generally how he feels. And then I'll recommend what you do. So I don't like it. Custody evaluators, uh, again, sounds like a great idea. Bring in a psychologist or other mental health professional to talk to the kids and conduct psychological and mental health evaluations and do some home visits and figure out what works best. But the problem is the one thing they don't do is try different kinds of custody. They go in and make an educated guess needlessly. And it costs in Utah anywhere between five to $10,000 by the time it's over. Yeah, it's, we, we are, they're called child's attorneys here in California. Um, there's only specific circumstances. They aren't all too common, but uh, I have very similar feelings about the evaluators and I'll, I'll share uh, a, a conversation I had in the last two weeks with a therapist here in Southern California who is in all of the county's lists of approved providers. And I had a conversation with her about the what seemingly was that when a neutral party got involved, we got one of these boilerplate mom primary custody and what evaluation was actually going on. And I was like, I just want to, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to get a feel for maybe what can be done better. What, how can I better service my clients? And her response in a very defensive way was, well, it happens to moms too. And I immediately asked her, I'm like, what happens to moms? We didn't talk. We weren't even talking about men, women, anything. I was just asking you about what goes into the process. How can attorney best service the evaluator. They aren't any better at determining facts than judges are. They just spend a little bit more time around them. And I can only imagine guardian ad litem, that would frustrate me to no end because what most states it's between 20 and 40 hours worth of a curriculum and you can be a guardian ad litem. Yep. That's enough to be able to evaluate the mental state of children, what emotionally is going to put them in the best place. There's no way the the therapist... Yeah. At least that they're bad at it and they have master's degrees, they have yeah. doctorates. They've been yeah. like, I mean, uh, and here's the other thing, Mark. Here's the other part. The judges in Utah are authorized to interview the children. And so I've said, hey, rather than have it be secondhand information filtered through a guardian and or custody evaluator, why don't you just talk to them yourself? Now, granted, if a child's three, that may not work. But if this child is 12 or older, talk to the child weigh that child's credibility 
and determine whether that child is someone that understands what's going on and whether that child experiences observations, opinions, and desires have, and have merit and sound like a good idea. I've never, ever had a court interview children. It's right there on the books. I did have one case in juvenile court where the judge said, I will interview the kids. And the opposing side was so terrified, they dismissed the case. And why were they so terrified? Because they knew that everything they'd told the court about the kids and what should be done, the kids were going to refuse. Yeah, 100%. And I, I, my personal opinion is, and I'm not going to say this is all judges, but I, I believe some judges enjoy bringing or like bringing that, neut- that neutral third party in so they don't have to make decisions. Um, uh, some judges just, especially out yeah. here, are a lot quicker to go to those neutral third parties and it takes the onus off of them. If a bad decision's made, if something goes wrong, it wasn't them. It was that person they enlisted to make that decision. And if they talk to the kids, they have to take the kids' testimony into account. If somebody makes a recommendation, it gives them more latitude to do whatever they want if they're inclined to be that kind of judge. Yeah, 100%. So we're, we're closing in on the end of the hour here. I want to thank you uh, for giving us the time, dropping the knowledge. Um, I know about 10 minutes ago, you gave us about 15 minutes of gold that I encourage every dad to go back and listen to because that's going to make your life easier navigating this system. So you're in the state of Utah. Um, wh- what areas do you service? I, I, I practice throughout the state of Utah. Okay, so you're throughout the state of Utah and where can they find you online? The website is divorceutah.com, D-I-V-O-R-C-E-U-T-A-H, all one word, dot com. Boom. Okay, so if you're in the state of Utah and you're in the market for an attorney, um, look Eric up there and um, give him a shout. Um, If you're in the state of California, um, you guys know where to find me, realfathersrights.com. Drop me a message on Facebook um, or Instagram, the father's rights attorney. Um, Eric, anything you want to, to leave the viewers with tonight? Yeah, I'll just say one thing. I, I do not uh, represent men only. I do enjoy representing men because uh, tilting at windmills and dealing with some of the injustices makes you feel good personally as an attorney. But I also represent women because you have to know the enemy on both sides to be effective. So you got to represent women to represent men well. you got to represent men to represent women well. So I welcome all kinds. I want to make sure that people understand I am not exclusively uh, a father's attorney, nor do I feel that men only get treated badly, but in custody, it, there's no question. Men are that, second that's class that's parents. A point. They, there are women who really, really get a raw deal in, in this system. Um, so it definitely goes both ways. So um, I want to thank you again for coming on tonight. Thank everyone for watching. Next Thursday, we're going to have Tos- Tulsa, Oklahoma attorney Keith Flynn on the show. Um, you can find him at Tulsa Father's Rights Attorney. So next week, it'll be two attorneys who only represent men. But um, Eric at DivorceUtah.com. Um, if you're in the state of Utah, thank you again for coming on. And we will see everyone next Thursday. Thanks, Mark.